Welcome to The Green Docs. This podcast covers the latest in women's and family health and how these are impacted by our environment. Here's everything your OBGYN probably isn't telling you, but should be. The Stanley Cup tumblers have buried the lead and the lead. These popular beverage containers have been found to have lead tucked beneath their stainless steel insulation. But does it matter? And a recent report from the Centers for Disease Control highlights the continued rise of U.S. preterm birth rates between 2014 and 2022, up to now nearly one in 10 births. And Sex in the City asked the question, should you take your shoes off at the front door? Also framed as a woman's right to shoes. New insights provide an unexpected answer as to why you might do that. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. Have you ever wondered how an item gets recalled? Like, who's the first to figure out that could be a problem with one of these consumer goods? Well, today we're talking with the woman behind many of those recalls, including most famously the Stanley Cup tumblers. You may have seen the Big Dumb Cup skit recently on SNL. Today we're talking with Tamara Rubin, an activist, author, and founder of Lead Safe Mama, who will tell us everything you probably didn't know you need to know about lead in your home, in your drinking water, and in things like Stanley Cup tumblers. I'm Nate. I'm the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies, as well as a private practice physician and chief medical officer. And I'm Bruce, a Southern California OB, now in the second phase of my career, where I work to educate the public about climate changes, increasing threats to health, and helping to train the growing wave of health professionals that is joining this effort. But first, Nate, How are you? How are you doing up there? Has the rain started? Yeah, I mean, Southern California, when it starts to rain a little bit, we have storm watch and we start to hunker in. Yes, Kendall and I are, uh, thanks for for checking in. We are are barely surviving this uh, pretty mild torrential downpour. It's actually kind of a fun time of year to be looking for things to do indoors. Oscar season is is coming up. And uh, if you're like me, you don't get to watch a lot of these movies when they come out and go to watch in the theaters. So there's kind of a catch-up to do right now where you get to stream some. And it's just a good excuse to go to the movies when the weather's like this, really gray and cloudy and rainy. Last night, we went to go see Wonka, the origin story for Willy Wonka. Have you seen this at all? No, I have not. What'd you think? Well, without giving away, I guess the spoiler alerts could still be relevant because like, it's, it's out there. I think definitely like Timothy Chalamet is the heir apparent to Gene Wilder as Wonka. I don't know if there'll be more of these movies, but I would definitely go watch him again as his character. And personally, I just, I love these origin story movies. It's kind of my thing. So, so I, I liked it. And the other thing I'll say about this movie is that they did a really good job of creating that kind of air of wonder and magic and suspension of disbelief. Because uh, as I'm watching this, you know, we had just talked about chocolates that are safe uh, for Valentine's Day, low in heavy metals. And as I'm watching the story where Wonka has sourced ingredients from all over the world, some very exotic things. I found myself thinking like, yeah, these will still be healthy. This would still make the list. This would join like Ghirardelli and Verona as free from heavy metals, even if it does have, say, 
milk from a giraffe. So job well done for creating that universe you, you wanted to spend some time in. Uh, how about you, Bruce? Do you have any uh, movies you're going to watch coming up? I just find myself wondering if Erewhon up in LA would have giraffe milk. I think if I would fit out it. Future mocktail ingredient. <laughs> I see a whole range of drinks that could come from that. I actually am heading to Las Vegas tomorrow, and I have reservations tomorrow afternoon to go to the Sphere. What are you watching at the Sphere? Darren Aronofsky's movie called Postcards from Earth, so that'll be cool to see. Well, great. So we can compare notes then after you've watched it. Okay, well, let's let's talk about our headlines because we've got a unique situation here where our guest is actually talking about one of the top stories in the world right now, which are these very popular Stanley Cup tumblers, SNL called them, uh, the Big Dumb Cups, which was, I don't know if you saw the skit or not, but it was hilarious. And Tamara Rubin was one of the ones who pointed out that these have lead in them, which automatically sounds pretty scary. Now, if you dig a little deeper, pun unavoidable here, the lead apparently is underneath the stainless steel insulation. The official response from the company is that this is not anything your liquid comes in contact with, and it is therefore not a health problem. Does that sound reassuring to you? A big part of what I want to talk to Tamara about is just how much lead is out there all around us all the time in so many instances, and none of it has to be, from what I can tell, or at least it doesn't have to be nearly as common as it is. So it's an interesting story, and, and I'm actually glad that it has caught the public's attention in the way that it has. It's all over social media. I have a lot of questions for her about this, but it's another example of something that we didn't hear very much at all about in medical school, just how ubiquitous lead exposure turns out to be. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, it has been in a, a lot of uh, other cups, like you said, and theoretically, it shouldn't come in contact with anything that you consume. On the other hand, that assumes that the device is working properly, that there's no erosion, there's no breakdown, there's no... And so some people would look at this and say, well, I don't want to have to rely on the fact that this device works properly to protect myself from this very toxic chemical. So I think, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to asking her her thoughts about that. Like, what should people be thinking about for their personal comfort level? Like, what is a calculated risk versus what is totally reckless? What should we know about preterm birth rates in the US? CDC says it's on the rise. Yes, and apparently the interval that was studied in this recent report is 2014 to 2022, and it was up 12% in that time period. And I think it's important to remind anybody who's listening that preterm birth, although it's becoming increasingly common, is not a good outcome. Oftentimes, premature births, particularly if they're close to 37 weeks, don't have any major health impacts, but it is certainly a category of birth that is much better off to avoid because it can lead to problems in infancy and childhood and clear into adulthood, both behavioral problems and physical ones. And instead of a simple explanation, like there's one factor we can point to and reduce preterm birth rates by addressing it, it's likely that there are many, many causes that are just all coming together right now. There's a multitude of things. I mean, it's, it's multifactorial. Was there anything that the, that the authors called out in this case specifically that they think is contributing to the rise? Well, they talked about stress, about poor nutrition, and our own research points to at least a strong association with more particulate pollution and heat tied to climate change uh, being correlated with premature birth. 
We'll come back to this at the end of the episode and talk about takeaways from this information, but it's a trend that's going in the wrong direction and it's concerning. Yeah, it's kind of a tough topic to trend in a way because the better you get at taking care of it, the more common it becomes. In other words, deliveries at a certain gestational age and the very preterm birth rate used to be so early that they wouldn't even count in these stats because the newborn could never survive. Now we've gotten much better at caring for those. The I think this is sort of a famously known example, but John F. Kennedy in his presidency, he and Jackie had a pregnancy that delivered at 35 weeks. And this presumably would have had access to every state-of-the-art medical advance at the time. And the, the baby was born at 35 weeks and, and died from hyaline membrane disease or, or immature lungs. That would be almost unheard of nowadays for a 35-weeker not to make it. We've simultaneously gotten very, very good at providing kind of rescue or emergency care for deliveries before 37 weeks. But also we, we see it rising and it, it is hard to point what that is other than just a wider range of preterm births that survive in general. But the part that gets interesting about our environmental lens is that whether the environment is the factor leading to an increase in preterm birth, it is more and more understood to be a strong contributing factor. It's not talked about very much. And one of the studies we often can cite is from Leo Trasande, uh, where they pointed out that roughly 3% of preterm births in the United States could be attributed solely to air pollution. That's a really important percentage and, and factor to look at if you're trying to reduce something that is an undesired outcome. I think that will continue to be a theme throughout this episode and throughout our podcast is that it, whether the environment is driving new trends or not, there's an unappreciated contributor. And the more we know about it, the more we can manage it. That's right. So uh, speaking of things that are very important to address, what about taking your shoes off at the front door? <laughs> do you take your shoes off at the front door? I do. I was pretty sure I remembered when I, when I was at your place last time, I was slipped them off at the front door. Yeah, it's, I think, a common practice in a lot of houses. It, it certainly isn't anything like weird if, if people ask you to take your shoes off the front door. Uh, in this episode of Sex in the City, it was, <laughs> it was just kind of a whole scene because... This was a party that women had gotten very dressed up for. They had like high heels. It was all an event. And now they have to take their shoes off and can't even like make their laps around the party the way they wanted to. And the, the reason then was that the, the host has a newborn baby. And so they didn't want to track any bacteria through the house, which I think for a while was the, the party line. It was why you would, would have that habit. But more and more, again, to kind of underline this point, what we're realizing is that it's not just bacteria that might be on your shoes. It's lead. It's heavy metals. It's all the kind of dust from a very industrialized world that we live in that gets onto your shoes and that will track everywhere you'd walk in the house. And as I think Tamara will point out in more detail with the interview, these heavy metals lead in dust is actually a really big exposure and really, really big contributor to how families might encounter uh, where they think they probably otherwise you know, don't have a lot of risk. Yeah. And in my place, I started doing this. Actually, when I grew up, we didn't have a rule like that in my house, but I started doing it after I remodeled my home because you could literally see the footprints on the floor. I have dark wood floors and you could see my footprints and everyone else's footprints every time people came in with shoes on. And my feet would actually get dirty walking around the house if I'd had friends over or if I hadn't taken my shoes off at you know a couple of other times, I would notice the bottoms of my feet would get dirty just walking around. I didn't think about the toxic risk of that. It was just unpleasant to get dirty feet walking around inside my own place. But 
yeah, I mean, think of all the stuff our shoes pick up and the places that we walk are, um, <laughs> as you say, near roadways and things like that. We're bringing in all kinds of unpleasant chemicals into the house. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things about these uh, environmental messages. They can sound, I, I know, sometimes kind of preachy, but the reality is once you start trying some of them, you kind of just like it better. Like I haven't drank water out of a plastic bottle in a long time. And I'm not going to pretend that it's solely a health reason. I just like the way water tastes out of glass and ceramic and anything other than plastic. And uh, I kind of adopted this recently of, of taking the shoes off at the front door. And I, I kind of just like it better. I, I, I have a pair of slippers that are worn inside now, like these, especially when it's cold like this, uh, have that, uh, that shearing slippers. It's just more enjoyable. Do you have any slippers you offer your guests? That was one of the things the article mentioned. Like some people who are really strict about it will have basically guest slippers to wear around the house. I don't. I think people generally leave their socks on. And I'm not uh, militant about it. If somebody wants to keep their shoes on, I'm fine with it. You know, it's kind of obvious you walk into my place because at the front door there, are, my shoes are sort of lined up there underneath my entry table. So it becomes rather obvious. I also have a really nice stool, a handmade custom wood stool that cost me more than a little bit that I think looks like kind of an inviting place to sit down if someone was inclined to take their shoes off. But for the wintertime, I wear these really nice wool cashmere socks around the house. And I love having them on. It's cozy. It's clean. And I think it's a recurring theme of this show that we talk about that so much of what we need to do to protect our health and to protect, the, uh, to protect nature actually leads to better quality of life. So yeah, it, it's, it kind of makes the house feel much more warm and cozy and clean, which is just more pleasant. What, what was the sales pitch for this wooden stool? Was this like crafted out of <laughs> harvested pirate ships or beech wood from Hawaii? <laughs> what was the selling point for this? Well, it's from uh, a little design boutique corner of, of Heath Ceramics, which makes beautiful tiles and cups and plates and things like that. And I love Heath. I have lot, lots of their stuff around that I eat off of every day. But they have local artists they work with. And it's odd that you ask this question because the guy who makes these stools apparently, and I still remember this, although it's been a good five or six years, he's an ex-Apple executive that retired. And what he does in his spare time now is he makes these beautiful handmade one-off stools and small tables and things like that. And he donates the profits since he obviously doesn't need money. He donates the, the money that, that he earns from doing this to a sightless children's fund for kids who are born with major sight impairment. That's just the, the charity that he supports. So I was happy to spend a pretty decent amount of money on this beautiful stool because for multiple reasons. Well, that was not the story I was expecting, but uh, definitely something you can, you can rest upon. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this upcoming interview and why we're talking about lead poisoning in the first place compared to say all the other toxics that are out there. There are a few things that are different about lead. Uh, the first is that it effectively is brain damage. And as hard as that is to perhaps hear or think about, it, it is the truth. I think with other toxic chemicals, we might think about maybe a skin burn or temporary symptoms, headaches, nausea, and all those can happen with lead. But the scary thing about these heavy metals, lead in particular, is that it can be lifelong damage to brain, nervous system, things like behavioral problems, learning disabilities. It's estimated upwards of one in 10 cognitive disorders with no otherwise explanation are actually due to lead poisoning. And these are lifelong 
And particular to what we talk about in our podcast with women and family health, children are especially vulnerable. Even a small amount is too much and can cause these lifelong uh, health consequences, learning disabilities, cognitive impairment, et cetera. We're, we're going to hear from Tamara Rubin, who herself is a mother of children with lead poisoning. She goes into some great detail about what that looks like. Even she herself has been tested for lead and found to have a degree of lead poisoning. So she's going to tell us her story, but it's not all just heavy topics. There is a point to talk about all this, which is that many of these conditions and exposures are preventable by just preventing the lead exposure in the first place. In some cases, they're manageable. And to a certain degree, there are treatments that can be done. So stay tuned for everything you need to know about preventing lead poisoning in your family. We are so pleased to be joined by an environmental activist, a documentary filmmaker, and uh, the woman perhaps with her finger on the pulse of everything related to lead toxicology in the world. Welcome to the Green Docs, Tamara Rubin. Thank you for having me. We are so pleased that you could join us. And I know it's not easy for multiple reasons with all that you have on your plate, but in particular, you're not anywhere near our time zone. What are you doing in Scotland? <laughs> well, it's a long story. It's a long, complicated story, but the short end of it is that I decided to take most of the past year, basically from May of 2023 through May of 2024, to travel and explore other places and investigate lead and lead contamination in other environments and meet with a lot of the Lead Safe Mama readership. So I have my website, leadsafemama.com, tamarubin.com, and I have readers all over the world. And so one of the things I do when I travel is I meet up with a lot of the families who I've helped or families who have questions. And we do um, small community events with free consumer goods testing using XRF technology. And it's just a way for me to kind of expand my information base and learn more about areas that I might not have all the details on. Yeah, I thought it was interesting you were in Scotland specifically because they have a kind of an under the radar reputation that, that's growing now, I guess, as a leader in sustainability. They are housing a lot of the conferences, the, the international conferences on this. When I, when I got to visit a few years ago, it was really an interesting blend between old world and new world because some of these homes were centuries old. And yet, okay, I'll admit I was at this, the Scotch distilleries. Uh, <laughs> they, they were able to say things like today's rain is tomorrow's whiskey and draw a line for you from where they would collect the rain to all the filtering processes it goes through that were very new and green and innovative. Is that something you see there still? Well, I've noticed um, in the communities where I'm meeting people that there's a lot of environmental activists, like it's fundamentally people interested in the environment, interested in preserving the land, interested in working with the land. And that also comes out of being in a farming community or farming communities. And the interesting thing for us, my kiddos are vegan. Uh, and there's just so many vegan restaurants here. It's overwhelming. It's wonderful. So it's really pretty progressive. And also, um, you know, it's an opportunity. It's a place of opportunities because there's a depopulation with the aging population, which is a problem throughout Europe and, and, uh, and the UK and elsewhere, where there are communities that are mostly aging population and they're, they, they need young people to come and uh, set down new routes. So there's opportunities here for a lot of people. 
And, uh, you know, we're actually considering moving here uh, at least part time eventually once we sell our farm in California. So that's another topic. Wow. Well, there's <laughs> probably not any vegan haggis there in uh, Scotland. Where is vegan you're, you're haggis? You're kidding me. How can you have vegan haggis? <laughs> I don't know. It's on the menu, vegan haggis. Uh, well, that's incredible. For for those who aren't familiar with, with this local Scottish delicacy, I suppose you'd call it, I believe it's like sheep's heart and liver and lungs, and it's all kinds of mixtures of, I thought, pretty animal product. But uh, Yeah, stuffed in a sheep's stomach or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You two are not making me hungry. Covered <laughs> <laughs> sheep enough probably now. Let's talk about Stanley Cups and the tumblers and... This was such an incredible story. It made it to Saturday Night Live, which I don't know how people measure success, but that, that in terms of public communication, that has to be some pretty high high bar. What what is it like having something that you work on appear on SNL? It was pretty. So I have you know presented with Bernie Sanders in Flint uh, during the 2016 election. I've opened for Aaron Brockovich. And I've got to say that having my work mentioned on Saturday Night Live is a highlight, probably almost beyond those first two. <laughs> and, you know, the people at Saturday Night Live probably don't know that they were mentioning my work. It's interesting how um, about 50% of the stories know that this is a, is a result of my work and then 50% have no idea. But it was really wonderful to see my work um, kind of infiltrate popular culture in that way. And have it done in a way that, um, it, while it made light to, of it, it also highlighted the issue in a, in a way that increased the international attention on the issue, which is wonderful. But it does seem like stuff like this is bound to happen given how long you've been at this and how many instances you've provided the public information in various channels. So just ultimately it has to bubble up to even Saturday Night Live. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I think this, this, this round is different because there's been a little more uh, weight to the credibility of the concern in a lot of the journals that have published this information. While some have been dismissive, many have really emphasized that even though this doesn't happen on every single one of these products, it's happening on some of them and children may be exposed and that's enough of a problem that we should deal with it. There's a lot of serious topics to get into on this, and I promise we can get there very quickly. But I'm just really curious, like, how did you find out this was on SNL? So I have two and a half million friends. Um, basically, the the women, mostly women, there's some men, but it's like 95% women in my audience that read my website. Usually, I hear about these things through the Let's Safe Mama community, which is the people who I communicate with online on social media via my website or Instagram or Facebook. And, and, and it's, it's like they're all friends. It's fun. They're all so excited for seeing it on Saturday Night Live as well. So, yeah, it was a friend on, on social media that, that told me about how, it. How many birthday messages do you get on, on your birthday? Do you get 2.4 million? <laughs> Does it come through on your feed like that? <laughs> no, not quite that many, but a few. <laughs> yeah. Well, diving into the substance of this whole Tumblr story, I've been wondering with the way that, that it has really exploded in the public consciousness, are the people at Stanley steaming mad at you? Do you hear from them? You know, um, I have learned over the last, well, since 2009, since I started doing independent consumer goods testing using XRF technology, so that's 15 years now, uh, I've learned how to write about this in a way that 
if people express anger, people meaning companies express anger, they regret it. Basically, what happens is I'll write about something having led, and I'm always very science-based, and I'm always very factual. I don't assert a health concern unless I have experienced one with a family I've worked with. I do home consulting for families around the country and in in Canada. And unless I've experienced an actual health concern, I, I don't couch the information in that way. But I also do discuss the potential health concerns, the risks, and you know how one should weigh those things. And so when a company sees what I've written, there's not a single sentence that they can challenge. And the reason I've done that that way is because over the years, companies threatened to sue me constantly for this work. I had one, um, it was a teapot company, and they were marketing their teapots as lead-free. And I just, you know, posted, look, here I found lead on this teapot and this company advertises them as lead-free. And their first response was, we're going to sue you, take that information down. And I'm like, there's no false information here. I'm not going to take the information down. I'm sorry you're upset about this. Why don't you make your lead-free teapot lead-free? <laughs> I had that happen with marbles from Marble King. So the, the interesting thing is the, ver- the variety of responses. Initially, Marble King uh, threatened to sue me, had their lawyers call me because they were marketing their marbles as lead-free, and I found lead in pretty much every color of, of their marbles. And then later, when they realized, okay, well, these are facts, we can't dispute these in a court of law, they just changed their language. So the language on their website no longer says lead-free, which is frustrating, but it's still a step forward in that a child who is going to have these in their home, their parent isn't going to falsely think that the marbles are lead-free. Yeah, and, and that's really where the concern gets heightened, I think, right, is, is for the, the exposure around children. Uh, not that it's nothing to worry about for adults. I mean, certainly nobody would want to have the brain damage that could ensue from lead or heavy metal poisoning. But really, the incredibly low threshold where there's really no safe amount for children is where I think some of these personal choices become sort of obvious choices where you wouldn't want even a tiny bit of theoretical exposure. Is that the situation with, because I, I did a bit of digging onto the lead and the Stanley Cup tumblers, and the company will say that this is lead that is part of their insulation, it's underneath stainless steel, but then there seem to be examples where that could erode or could that the lead could be exposed. So what, what, what do people do with this information that there's lead in a product, but they're unsure of how likely they are to encounter it in what gets into their system? Well, the problem is when the media cites corporate public statements as fact. And the big statement here that Stanley has said is that the bottom caps don't fall off and the lead is hidden underneath stainless steel. And that's just simply not true. I mean, in the two to three day window, 72 hours after this whole thing went viral, crazy viral, I probably got between two and 300 messages saying, oh, here's a picture of my Stanley cup. The, the bottom fell off within a few weeks of using it. I can't believe I didn't know about this. I was still using it. My children were using these every day as their water bottle for school or for soccer practice or whatever. And they didn't know that there was lead and they would have stopped using it had they known that there was lead, but they assumed it was safe. And so the fact that Stanley repeatedly says, in all of these public statements that are being quoted by the media that this is not accessible. And the fact that that's not true is what we really need to be examining. And it's very frustrating because some of the bigger news outlets like the Washington Post wrote an article where they basically downplayed the concern and relied on the word of the company, Stanley, that this is not an accessible bit of lead. 
Whereas other outlets really uh, delved into the issue more specifically and realized, yes, in fact, these are coming off and this is exposing lead to the user. And that is a problem at these microscopic amounts that that can cause harm. At least we have a, a, a maybe a 50% enlightening of the awakening of the media around this. And I'm hoping that that will continue. I think that what the, the advice that I always give to parents is that when you're choosing a product, anything for your home or your family, and especially for your children, you need to put the research into it like you would for your child's car seat. You put so much time into choosing that car seat, you know, whether or not it has flame retardants, what the safety rating was, how long it was supposed to last, what the conversion, you know, is for different sized children. All the research you did to choosing your car seat, you should put that research into everything you bring into your home that your children might be exposed to or might use in their daily lives. Because once you make that choice, you only have to make it once. Now, it sounds like you've done a lot of the work for these parents in a way. I saw on your website, you have products that you have reviewed and, and you have said, you know, meet your pass muster for you. Is, uh, is that a good place to direct parents who care a lot about this topic, but just don't know where to start as far as doing the research? It's a little frustrating because my job is to protect your children from being exposed to lead. I don't consider my primary job to be to recommend products. However, under duress, because there's so much increase in that direction from my readership, I do recommend the safer choices. And I really try and only stick with products that I use with my family or products I would use with my family. Whereas there's a lot of websites out there that recommend all these different products that they have affiliate relationships with or that they've heard are good or that they they read the review and, and, and they believed what the company had to say about it. I only recommend products that I've done XRF testing on. Either I found that exact product to be good or I found it to be from a brand that has consistently good test results. And so I trust that brand and I'm pretty strict about that. And I do have those recommendations on my website as well. You know, I got to back you up a little bit because you've mentioned XRF technology a, a couple of times, and I'm not sure what that stands for. I watched the documentary. I have a feeling I saw it in action, but I need you to- Oh my God, she's, she's got the device right there with her. <laughs> Don't shoot. <laughs> it looks like a, a space age uh, blaster of some kind, but what is that and how do you use it? And can ordinary people pick one of these up and should they? No. Yes. Maybe. No. Um, so this is an x-ray fluorescence spectrometer. An x-ray fluorescence spectrometer is a scientific instrument that you need to be trained and certified to use. You also need to have it registered in most of the states where you use it. Not all states, but some states. But one of the reasons my work is so effective is because I've been doing this since 2009 and I know how to test for these things. I know where to look for them. I know, you know, what kind of things to look, you know, how to look behind the surfaces of different types of products. And, you know, maybe in this case of the Stanley product to look in this one particular spot. One of the really neat things that I did this past year was I worked for the city of Columbus, Ohio, Department of Public Health. They hired me to have me come do a full day training for health department employees and teach them how to test consumer goods for lead in looking for unexpected hidden sources of lead exposure. Well, let's talk about that a bit. I mean, without giving away your secret sauce and your your currency for these home inspections, I do want to talk about your film and lead in paint, as well as these uh, maybe unexpected sources, because I watched the documentary and it sufficiently freaked me out. Uh, I <laughs> made the mistake of watching it while I was on call, so kind of in the wee hours of the morning. And basically, as soon as my wife was even stirring in bed, I was like, you know, right there. We got to talk about this. <laughs> How do we know if there's lead in our 
windowsills or in the dust from our coat hangers that move across a painted rack and just all these things that, or, or even your neighbor's home that is being redone that you have no control over probably. So as far as the takeaways from the movie, what would young families or new parents or just new homeowners want to know about what to ask and what to look for, for knowing if that home is full of lead paint or, or, or sources of lead? The focus is always on homes built before 1978. And the main thing to understand is that even if a home has been renovated, even if it has been ostensibly gut renovated, there's still the potential for hazards in that home. And so all homes should be inspected, ideally before you purchase them, definitely before you move in. If you do purchase a home without a hazard inspection, or if you rent a home without a hazard inspection, I encourage people to plan an overlap of two weeks to a month if they can afford it, where they do the testing before they move in so they can identify and and address uh, at least any of the extreme hazards. Unfortunately, there are areas where lead has not been outlawed. And so even the 1978 law that restricted the use of lead to 600 parts per million in paint is not going to help protect a family. And, and And the main areas for that are tile, which is still legally allowed to contain lead. I've been to homes throughout California that use Mexican tile. It's beautiful. It's decorative. It's lovely. And it can be, you know, 45,000 parts per million lead when the amount of lead that's considered unsafe for an item intended for use by children is anything 90 parts per million lead or higher. So that's a concern is tile. And that doesn't just have to be Mexican tile. I find it Mexican tile, Italian tile, and Portuguese tile for sure. And then also tiles that are from your local hardware store, you know, Home Depot. A lot of the newer subway tiles are low lead or lead free, but those are like the plain white subway style tiles. But many tiles that have any kind of color or decorative element, even if they're like a slow wood look tile or a faux stone tile can still have high levels of lead legally. So any work that is being done in tile renovation, redoing a bathroom, redoing a kitchen should be done in a lead safe way even if that is a newer kitchen or bathroom, because those tiles could have high levels of lead. And, you know, in terms of what new parents can do, I think watching my film is a really good first step. It's available for free on my website at the moment. It was uh, not completed, so it was never distributed in, in theaters, but it looks complete to most people who watch it. And it has lots of information that will help guide your inquiry. And so getting a hazard assessment of your home, testing your children for lead before you move into a place, and then testing them again a month later is always a good thing. It's terrible to use children as a canary in a coal mine, but it's the technology that we have that's available and accessible and inexpensive at this time. Testing your water for lead, testing your soil for lead, it's are all good things to do. Yeah, I just want to add, Tamara, that I freaked out watching your film too. Uh, I was extremely grateful for the freak out, if that makes any sense at all, because it was like learning that there is this specter that's, that's all around us that is so difficult to avoid and something that most of us have no awareness of. And I don't have any small children to be extra cautious about, but now it makes me curious. You talk about 1978, that wasn't that long ago. There are an awful lot of homes all across the country that were built before that and painted before that and tiled before that. And as you say, the the tiling still goes on now with lead in it. And the story also reminds me of some other unhappy stories that we talk about on this show that that I think most people are aware of. But this ubiquitous and dangerous exposure 
that's being protected by a powerful industry that, from what I understand from my reading, is still growing, the lead industry. It sounds an awful lot like the tobacco story, and it also sounds an awful lot like the oil industry, fossil fuels, and climate change. Yeah, well, the fun thing, the fun in a disturbing way, the interesting thing, is that in the California lawsuit against the lead industry from 2014, the lawyers that the lead industry hired to represent them were the same lawyers that fought the tobacco lawsuits. They're like the same people. It's not just the same firms. It's the same people. <laughs> and, you know, so these people, I don't know how they sleep at night, obviously. They're defending industry and then they're defending an industry that is causing harm to countless people. I mean, millions upon millions of people. The one thing I like to share that is an important thing to share for new moms and new parents in general, is that people think lead poisoning is a thing of the past, and it's not a thing of the past. It's a, it's still a current ongoing concern. And then people say, oh, but there's so many things to worry about. I have to worry about BPA and, and mercury and all these other things. Well, Dr. Trasande at NYU uh, did a study, an economic impact study, where he determined that at the time, and this didn't count, this didn't cover all environmental uh, economic impacts, but uh, at the time, the the health impacts of toxicants on children was valued to be at about seventy six point six billion annually, and that was just for medical interventions and medical impacts. And then, of that seventy six point six billion annually, fifty point nine billion of that was lead, and then the other twenty five billion was everything else. So, lead was still more than two thirds of the impact of environmental toxicants. And all the other toxicants combined weren't even about half of, of that amount. So people need to get that because that's how prevalent lead is. And that's how important it is for us to learn about it. And the more we know, the more we learn about it, the more we can protect our children. And, and there really isn't anyone else protecting our children in this way. We really need to do it ourselves by educating ourselves enough that we can make safer choices for our families. Yeah, I, I think that's what hit me hardest about the film was just how severe the brain damage can be of lead poisoning. That this is not something, I guess, I, I think a lot of times people might imagine environmental risks being temporary. You have a asthma exacerbation, you get a sore throat, you get headaches from fumes. But you're right, the heavy metal toxicity is, is lifelong. Uh, it's hard to rank things, but if you're just doing kind of a piece of the pie percentage-wise, it definitely has been shown to be one of the, the leading causes of these chronic conditions. And I mean, even for somebody like myself, who who is a practicing obstetrician, who has these environmental roles, I work with with Dr. Leo Trasande on some of these committees. It just it hits differently when it's in your house and you're thinking about it, not as a physician giving counseling, but when it's your family or when it's your home. And uh, so this was a, this was a novel message to myself. I'm sure it will be novel to a lot of people. So what what does it take? I'm asking this from from your side as a, as a patient advocate. If you have a child who you think you may be worried about some symptoms of lead toxicity, what should parents be on the lookout for? And how hard is it to get a doctor to order a lead test for a child you're worried about? <laughs> <laughs> well, back to just one thing to what you said earlier, which is, you know, the film, I designed the film so that people would realize it's their problem. So it sounds like it hit you in the right way. Um, it did. You know, th that's the idea is that everyone needs to realize that it's their problem. And then in terms of symptoms, the problem with lead exposure is that the biggest, most prominent, most pervasive symptom is no symptoms at all. So you don't see any symptoms 
unless you're really tuned into what those symptoms might be um, at the initial exposure. And you don't actually notice the symptoms of lead exposure until typically two, three, four years after a child has been exposed because they happen through the neurocognitive deficit. So if you have, um, you know, the neurocognitive deficits don't show up until there are milestones that are missed. So a child like my son, Avi, who had a blood level of 16 at seven months old, he was acutely poisoned. So he was cranky and he'd stopped wanting to try solids, which was fine because he was still mostly nursing. And he turned from being our absolute Buddha baby to being this cranky little terrible kid I couldn't make happy ever. And which just was miserable for me because I was like, oh my God, I finally had the perfect baby. And and then this happened and I didn't understand what was wrong with him. But th- that was, um, you know, diarrhea, vomiting, uh, constipation, all, all things that are often happening with children and cannot be generally isolated as being an impact of lead exposure. And he didn't start like exhibiting the impacts of lead exposure until he was around three when he passed through the terrible twos and instead of getting onto the other side of terrible twos, became uh, terrible twos on steroids and, you know, sent his brother to the hospital multiple times and he himself uh, broke bones and his brother broke bones and, you know, just lots of violent behavior that primarily comes from the frontal lobe impacts of of, um, not having um, the censorship that a developing brain um, grows into. You, you say, oh, I want to punch that kid. And then instead of saying, no, 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 that's bad, you actually go forward with it because you don't have the frontal lobe development that should be happening over time. The good news is that when a child is acutely lead poisoned like Avi, they develop strengths to make up for their deficits. So he is um, 19 years old now and he's a brilliant kid and he's he learns through auditory learning because he has a visual memory in the fourth percentile as, as a result of his diagnosed brain injury from lead poisoning. Is he going to be a full contributing member of society? Yes. But that has taken, you know, two parents and older brothers and lots of caregivers dedicating countless hours to making sure that he's going to succeed. One thing I'd like to tell you that I don't know if you have come across in my writings at all is that the CDC recommends testing children at one and two. And that's too late. Uh, What we need to do is test children before they start crawling and then several months after they start crawling. If you test a child before they start crawling, you catch airborne lead exposure hazards that may become significantly more impactful as that child starts crawling through the dust in the home and all of that. And then once you test them after they start crawling, if they tested negative in that first test, then you might catch a lead exposure really early on from dust in the home again, or or airborne exposures that come with the development or soil hazards or things like that. So if you test at those two phases, and I generally recommend six to eight months to, and then this uh, for the first test and like 12 to 15 months for the second test, testing at one and two is just too late. Did you ever have uh, physicians talk to you about testing while pregnant? I think, you know, it's a real problem that doctors aren't looking at that as a routine test done early in pregnancy. And even more so, I've been pushing for preconception testing. I think so. I think we should always be doing prenatal and preconception testing. And I think they're very, both very important. The preconception testing is even better because then if you catch a, a, a woman that tests positive for lead prior to conceiving, you both have the opportunity to educate that woman about 
the lead in her environment and to give her the opportunity to detox through diet and other methods in a way that might help her conceive. So these are all good things. Yeah. Part of the role that I serve connecting the OB and the pediatric societies came about because the pediatricians were seeing their patients with a whole host of environmental toxic buildup when it was too late. And and it's and it's crazy that a child who's one year old, two year old, it's too late, but th- that is the case for some of these. And so the thought was, well, let's connect more with the either pregnancy side or, as you said, I think probably most impactful, the preconception side. Historically, it's been a bit tricky to work in the lead or heavy metal testing if there's not a clear treatment for it. But it seems like the information is valuable in a number of ways, if nothing else to assess current exposures and assess ways to decrease those in your, in your living environment. And I mean, I have to mention, even though this is not kind of widely promoted as a treatment, I, I do have a, through my international work, colleague in Nigeria, who's a fertility specialist who has done chelation treatment on his patients and seen very promising results with successful conceptions after uh, chelation is essentially a way of draining heavy metals from the system. It is indiscriminate. It does have a lot of health risks on board with it, but there's even a sense this has worked in some cases. So I think, you know, whether it's something aggressive like that or or something just in knowing your current living environment and cleaning it up as much as possible, there does seem to be something that women planning on a pregnancy could address in their own home. I think the most important piece of that is there's chemical chelation and then there's food-based interventions. And the chemical chelation done in hospitals when a child's acutely poisoned is indiscriminate. It strips both beneficial minerals and the lead from the body, and that's why it can be potentially harmful. And then there's a lot of doctors, natural healthcare providers doing chelation methodologies that aren't necessarily sanctioned by Western medicine. And, you know, there's some of those might be fine. I'm not going to weigh in on that here. But I always try and emphasize food-based interventions whenever possible. And the best food-based intervention out there right now is garlic. There's been a bunch of different studies in different countries, I believe Vietnam, Japan, Korea, United States, all showing that Garlic is a really effective chelator for lead poisoning. And in fact, it's so effective that Western medicine providers doing chemical chelation of acutely lead poisoned children in hospital settings are adding garlic to the protocol because it's more effective than the chemical chelators and it doesn't have any harmful impacts in these settings. So this has been super well studied in scientific environments. It's your grandmother's remedy. You know, everyone loves a little more garlic in their food. And the only thing that is not, that there's not a consensus on, is there isn't a consensus in these scientific studies which form of garlic is the best. So some studies use cooked garlic, some studies use raw garlic, some studies use powdered garlic or garlic in pill form. So I tell people just to add garlic to everything and you'll do better. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm not a doctor, but well, it's really interesting. My Italian grandmother is smiling down from above hearing that message. <laughs> and uh, I think I'm going to add a few different versions of garlic to the, to the meal tonight uh, for, for, for Kendall and I. It is a recurring theme on the Green Docs that we keep coming back to the Mediterranean diet. So thank you for establishing that link from clear out of left field. Tamara, it, it sounds from the reading I've done on your website and watching the film and all that, you are essentially a one-woman federal health agency. What I keep coming back to is just the amazing 
endless energy you put into this where uh, you have suffered truly a, a, a huge injury in your family because of lead poisoning, and you've turned that into something that helps to protect and benefit children and families really around the world. And it's one of the things I love the most about hosting Green Docs with Nate is that we get to meet people like you. So please take great care of yourself and stay in touch with us. And we're really eager to share this work and your website and the film with our audience. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Well, that was an uh, amazing, uh, inspiring, and, and actually truly educational conversation with Tamara Rubin, who is quite an eco-avenger, as she does her very best to lead all of us towards a, a truly lead-free future. I don't know about you, but I learned a lot, and supposedly I'm an educated health professional. So I'm really glad that we get to share this conversation with everybody. Yeah, we don't just play doctors on TV. We've had training and everything. And uh, I agree. I definitely learned something. I also like this term eco-avenger. I think that may be something we come back to around Halloween season. Uh, let's let's uh, wrap up with some fast facts, Nate. Yeah. So fast fact number one, the preterm birth rate in the United States is currently 9% or 1 in 11 and rising. Now, there are many reasons for this, but one in particular to pay attention to is the environmental link. More and more research is showing the link between air pollution, heat, other toxic chemicals being strongly connected to preterm birth. And it's best to avoid them. We have many examples in our podcast, and we'll continue to highlight that wherever we can. Yeah, and another fast fact, the Department of Housing and Urban Development estimates that roughly 35% of U.S. homes, that's more than one in three, contain some lead-based paint. Now, this doesn't mean you're inhaling toxic fumes every time you take a breath at home, but it does mean you should have your house checked sooner rather than later. And also be on the lookout for other sources, like we talked about tile and even your Stanley Cup tumblers. The recommendation for women who are planning a pregnancy is to get tested for lead prior to conceiving and detox if significant levels are found. Tamara recommends that toddlers get tested prior to crawling around the house, so at about six months of age, and then again about six months later to determine whether or not they're picking up significant amounts of lead. And note, that's earlier than a lot of pediatricians recommend. Yeah, and one other note there, the home renovation and remodeling is the time of greatest exposure. That's what's highlighted in her film. But as she pointed out examples, there's never a bad time to kind of be checking it on your the health of your home environment. Yeah, and I'll jump on top of that and just say, even if they're renovating next door or nearby, those dust and fumes with heavy metals can get into your house. So be mindful of what your neighbors are doing a bit as well. Yes, and not all hope is lost. We have garlic to the rescue. Fast fact number three, garlic has been shown in peer-reviewed studies to reduce the amount of lead in your system by as much as 25%. This is equivalent to what's called chelation treatment, which is kind of the more standard medical treatment. But the garlic group had fewer side effects, improved symptoms, and obviously it tasted much better. So this isn't to say don't worry about getting your home tested or all the things we just mentioned about lead precautions now just go to the frying pan with olive oil and garlic, but it is one, one more reason to trust the Mediterranean diet. This episode is making me really hungry. So what do we got for mocktails? Well, something that may not be so appetizing, but we decided really to double down on this garlic as a health benefit and garlic as a chelator. Uh, we're having some wellness mocktails with garlic as a key ingredient. 
This probably feels kind of like one of those episodes of a cooking show where they have a random ingredient pop up. But both Bruce and I have done some work uh, and, and made these mocktails with, yeah, garlic as a key feature. Mine was called, we don't have to take our cloves off. <laughs> and the uh, main ingredient here was a kind of garlic infused simple syrup. It did take quite a bit of time with the frying pan to make. I will say I tried it before I mixed the drink. It, it, it was interesting. It wasn't like as pungent as you might think. Oh, the kitchen smells amazing. Uh, so I mixed that with some Monday brand bourbon alternative, and it recommended topping it with some chocolate bitters. So I like how much chocolate we're getting in our episode. What do you have, Bruce? I have a garlicky citrus non-alcoholic Bloody Mary. I am not really a Bloody Mary guy, but I do love tomato juice. And it's got a lot of interesting ingredients. It's uh, made with also roasted garlic and jalapeno and some lemon juice. I actually subbed lime because my lemon could not be located, but I got some Worcestershire sauce going on there and some horseradish. Of note in the recipe, it says to muddle all these things together at the bottom of a shaker. And I found that a bit challenging because my shaker is deep and muddling. I don't have a long-handed muddling instrument, but I ended up using a wooden spatula and just smushed it all together. But it looks pretty good. I mean, check this out. That sounds more like what my Italian grandma would have done. Like a, a wooden spoon takes care of a lot of things. <laughs> All right. One of our more daring uh, wellness mocktails. Cheers, Bruce. Cheers. All right. What do you think? Is it drinkable? This is delicious, actually. How about you? Yeah, I got to say, I much more tolerable than expected. I, I will say they recommended topping it with like a slab of dark chocolate that makes a really nice chaser. I've been going to that already. And uh, the health benefits from this, I think we've talked about garlic pretty well now. There is dark chocolate. We talked about that last episode. Some natural antioxidants and can modestly reduce blood pressure. A little bit of bonus there. Yeah, and mine also has a, a lot of tomato juice. It's the predominant ingredient. We know tomatoes are also squarely in the middle of the Mediterranean diet. It's like a Mediterranean diet in a glass. It's actually delicious. Well, Tamara told us to start putting garlic in everything. So here you are. You can even find a wellness mocktail with it. A new episode of Green Docs will be out every other Thursday, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content, or stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes and links for this episode, send us comments and questions, and join our growing email list for the latest Green Docs news and special offers. This garlicky episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picard and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411, with special thanks to Tamara Rubin of LeadSafeMama.com. Check out our website, GreenDocsPodcast.com. And if you like this, uh, want to help us grow, go please on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're streaming content and leave us a review. It only takes a few seconds, but it does help us a lot. We're looking to reach 100 reviews by the end of this month. And tune in every other Thursday for a new episode of Green Docs. Green Docs.